Um, I asked the 9.30 service this morning, um, I'll ask you the same question. Have, have you ever been responsible to stand up in front of a group of people and have something to say? And then when you get up in front of them, you, you're not sure if you really have anything to say or not? <laughs> Anybody? <laughs> Um, so normally, like, we'll do our preparation all week, and we know what we're doing, and then, you know, Saturday morning, I'll sit down and write a script, because, like, I gotta make sure I get you out of here sometime before the afternoon. <laughs> um, and then, and on Sunday morning, I'll come in really early, and I'll read it through, and it's never, I never have the feeling like, oh, that's good, but I do have the feeling like I know what that is. Like, I know what this is for. I know why this is the message God gave this church. And I feel confident on Sunday morning coming in. I did not feel that way this morning. I came in and I read it. And the first thing I thought was, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> um, I don't know what this is for. I don't know who it's for. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. Um, so I'm just being transparent with you. Um, on the day that we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, um, I am, I'm honestly transparently saying that I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will take whatever comes out of my mouth and help you hear what you need to hear today. And I really mean that. I really mean that. I think it's gonna be English that I'll speak. <laughs> um, but whatever it is, it has been my prayer this entire morning that what you hear will be what you need to hear. <laughs> because I just don't know. I'm coming in this morning a little afraid. Um, at the 9.30 service, about halfway through the sermon, I just ditched the entire script. I, I have no idea what's about to happen. So, I'm gonna be selfish. We need to pray, we need to pray for me. <laughs> I'm gonna pray for me, and <laughs> then I'm gonna pray that you hear what God has for you. So let's do that. Father, God, we are, uh, your family is gathered on just an important day, a day when we do celebrate uh, people who after your example would give their lives sacrificially so that others could find freedom and liberty and hope. And we thank you for that sacrifice that you made so that we can find eternal freedom and liberty and hope, um, not just from the things oppressing us in this world, uh, but from the sin that separates us from you. So this morning we do pray for a move of the spirit that would take whatever words come out of my mouth and turn them into something with meaning that brings hope, that brings a challenge, but also brings comfort to your family as we gather to worship and celebrate and remember who you are and what you've done. So open my mouth, open our ears, our minds, our eyes, and our hearts to receive whatever it is you have for us. And we pray as always that when we leave this place, that our hands and our feet and our mouths when necessary will be used by you to continue changing the world, the work your disciples began, that we would continue it until we see you face to face. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. amen. So today we're gonna to be reading from Acts chapter one. We'll read a little bit of the first part of Acts two as well, so if you wanna take your Bibles and begin turning there. We've been looking at the resurrection appearances of Jesus throughout the gospels. Last week we read the resurrection appearance in Matthew 28. And when Matthew tells that story, he tells us that when the disciples encounter the resurrected Christ, that they experience this really complicated mix of emotions, which is totally understandable. Nobody had come face to face with a resurrected person before. 
The women, when they encounter the resurrected Christ, it tells us that they were fearful, full of fear, and joyful, full of joy. Both things at the same time. The 11 remaining disciples, when they came face to face with the resurrected Christ, it says that they worshiped him, but that some still doubted. By the end of our reading today, those same disciples are going to be called apostles. And through them, the world will be changed. This world is forever changed because of what happened in and through them. The question is, how did that happen? Like, how did a gang of fearful doubters, like, remember, these guys, they're betrayers, they're deniers. The Apostle Paul later in the New Testament will call himself an enemy of God. Some of those disciples, they weren't looking to be freed from their sin, they just wanted to be free from Rome. Yet through the faithful witness of people like that, that's how Jesus found them. Through their faithful witness, the gospel of Jesus Christ has fundamentally changed the world. How? How did that happen? So I think that's what we're going to talk about today. (laughs) And I mean, it should be obvious even as we get started that I think this is where we find ourselves, often fearful and joyful, worshiping but still doubting. So how will that transformation happen in us? How will we go from fearful and doubtful to faithful and powerful in our witness to the good news of what Christ has done? So this morning we're going to read, we're going to hear about three miraculous events. They are miracles. I believe that they are real historical events. So in our reading this morning, we're going to see the final appearance of the resurrected Christ. We're going to read about his ascension. And then the arrival of the Holy Spirit that empowers his people to do the work that he called them to do. So let's hear this from Acts chapter 1. Luke writes this. This uh, This is the same Luke, by the way, that wrote the Gospel of Luke. He writes this in the book of Acts. He says, in my first book, I told you Theophilus. And the name Theophilus, it may be a name, but the word in Greek just means lover of God. So whether he's writing to an individual or writing to you, I think the answer is yes. He says, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and to teach. Until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem Until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly, suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing there staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, 
but someday he will return from heaven in the same way that you saw him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. So the passage begins with the final resurrection appearance of Jesus. Now we have been making the case, scripture makes the case, that if Christ has not been raised from death to life, then we have nothing. That we are hopeless, that we are lost. Paul says that if that's not true, that we are to be pitied as fools. So as we've been saying for the past six weeks, everything hinges on this one question. Was Jesus truly, physically, historically raised from the dead? Did that happen or not? That's what we've been talking about for six weeks. We believe that the resurrection was a real historical event in time and space. So last week, we addressed some of the common objections that people have to the resurrection. And if you weren't here, I would really recommend that you go listen to it and actually take some notes because the purpose of that message last week was to equip you and to prepare you so that you feel a little more confident, so that you feel like you can humbly answer just some of the basic objections when you have the opportunity to tell someone that you follow a crucified savior who is alive. You're gonna need to be ready to answer some questions when you make that claim. Now, before we talk about his ascension and the coming of the spirit, I wanna show you one more piece of evidence just from my perspective that has helped me to come to believe that the resurrection is true. Like I'm convinced that the writers of the gospels, the writers of the scriptures, they're not making these stories up They're not embellishing, they're not myth-making. I'm convinced they're just telling us what happened. And it's a tiny little piece of evidence, but to me it's become really profound, if you think about it. Um, In the accounts of the empty tomb, when those women come and find the empty tomb, when Peter and John come and find the empty tomb, there's one key detail that's missing from those accounts. In those stories, we have angels, we have this sealed and guarded stone that's been rolled away, In Matthew in particular, there's this earthquake that just continues to happen throughout the entire story. These are all fantastic things, absolutely. But there's one thing missing from the empty tomb accounts. Do you know what it is? It's the thing missing from the empty tomb. (laughs) It's Jesus. He's not referenced in the empty tomb's account. In the empty tomb accounts, they never describe the moment that he left the tomb. Do you know why? because they weren't there. They didn't see it for themselves. So they couldn't describe it. Like even later on in the resurrection appearances, the gospels hardly describe what Jesus looked like. Like if they were trying to start some movement in his memory, like they really should have been more descriptive. (laughs) Like listen to this again, this is the way Luke describes the ascension. The way Luke describes it when Jesus is taken up to be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He says this simply, after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. That's it, that's all he says. Like for an event so miraculous and so surprising, there is a shocking lack of detail. Like we find this in later writings, there's, uh, there's a book from late in the second century called The Gospel of Peter. It's not part of scripture. The only things that we have in scripture were written in the first generation of the followers of Jesus by people who were eyewitness to the events. If that's not, if that's not the case, those texts didn't make it into scripture, okay? So this thing called The Gospel of Peter, written a couple hundred years later, 
when it talks about the resurrection of Jesus, it talks about two men from heaven carrying him out of the tomb. And it says that those men were so tall that their heads reached into the heavens, but that Jesus was even taller. That his head reached far into the heavens behind where they could see. And then it says this. It says that coming out of the tomb behind them was a cross that was walking. And a voice from heaven speaks and the cross speaks back and answers. I mean, it's fantastic. (laughs) Like it might be a faithful representation of the meaning of the cross and the empty tomb, but it's not written as a, it's not trying to describe historical events. There's another book called The Epistle to the Apostles. When it describes the ascension, it says this. It says, there was thunder and lightning and an earthquake. The heavens parted asunder. I just like to read anything that uses the word asunder. It's a good word. And there appeared a bright cloud which bore him up. This is beautiful, poetic language. And I think it's probably a faithful attempt at reimagining the scene. But the astounding detail that we find in those writings, they're not in the Gospels. When these stories are told, we don't find them in poetry. There's no evidence of symbolism or metaphor surrounding these miraculous events. It's because they're not meant to be read as myth or legend. The writers wrote them as history because they intend for us to accept them as history. Like along with the answers we talked about last week to common objections to the resurrection, all of this gives me not just hope but confidence. Like real faith that this is all really true. As difficult as it is to believe. It gives me confidence that the eyewitnesses are reliable because they're just telling us what happened to them. And listen, I believe all this is really important as we try to answer the question that I asked earlier. How did these doubters and deniers become faithful and powerful in their witness? How did disciples who were simultaneously fearful and joyful worship while they doubted, how did they become apostles, leaders of the movement that turned the world upside down? Well, it started because they got some proof that it was real. They got evidence that it was true. Like they obviously witnessed events that changed their reality. And they're giving us the details. They're giving us the facts for those events. But y'all, I'm convinced that it took more than that. Because even standing face to face with the resurrected Jesus, they were still a bit of a mess, right? It took more to get them to where we find them in the book of Acts. So to answer this question, there's a pastor and theologian named John Stott. I mean, he says that all we have to do is look at what Jesus did for his disciples. He says there's four things that he did for them that moved them from discipleship, doubting discipleship, to powerful apostleship that moved them from following to leading. Four things that got them on mission. So he says first, that Jesus chose them. I read in verse two, giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. Now, last couple weeks ago, we talked about being chosen from the context of salvation. But today we're talking about Jesus choosing particular people for particular service, a particular task. In this case, it's to build the church with Jesus as its foundation. And this language is really specific in Greek. It's clear, chosen, not by humans, not self-appointed, not elected by committee, chosen and appointed by Jesus himself. At the end of Acts chapter one, that same language is used about a man named Matthias who was chosen to be the replacement for Judas Iscariot so that the number 12 is restored for the, for the disciples. 
Now that story is a little bit complicated, but the language is the same. It makes it clear that Jesus was the one who chose him. That same language is also used of Paul in Acts chapter 9. So the first thing Jesus did was he chose them for salvation and for a particular service to the kingdom of God. The next thing he did, and we've seen this throughout this series over the past six weeks, over a period of 40 days, Jesus showed them himself to them. He showed himself to them visibly. They heard him speak as he taught them about the kingdom of God. They touched him physically. They even ate with him. Like these stories are making it clear that he showed himself to them by engaging all of their senses, I believe. Their eyes, their ears, their hands, even the taste as he sat down with them for meals. I think even the smells. Like what we don't always realize is that he made his disciples go from Jerusalem to Galilee and back to Jerusalem again during that period of time. The journey that he went on with them through his ministry, he made them travel that same road twice. The smell of the Sea of Galilee, the smell of the cooking fire as they ate fish, the sights, everything that they remembered from his ministry, now preparing them for their ministry that's coming next, preparing them for the journey that lies ahead. So he chose them, he showed himself to them that he was truly alive, and then he commissioned them. He commanded them, he gave them work to do. He sent them to take the good news of salvation to the ends of the earth to Jew and Gentile, to friends and enemies. We heard that commission in verse eight this morning, but we also heard it last week in Matthew 28. It's our mission here at the church to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded us. That word go, go and make disciples, it's actually, you probably have heard this before, but it's really hard to translate in English. It uses a verb tense that we just don't have. It's not like, make a decision, and if you say yes, go and do this. It's this active, continual command. A better way to translate it is like, as you are going, right? So like, after what you hear me say, after what I command you to do, as you leave, after I'm done talking and you leave, as you go about the world, wherever you go, do this. Make disciples of all nations, teach them to obey everything that I've taught you. That's the commission. That's the work they were given to do. And then finally, he made them a promise. That's the fourth thing. In John's gospel in chapter 14, he said, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name and he'll teach you all the things and he'll remind you of everything that I said to you. So like in this final resurrection appearance, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem for that spirit to come. Because that spirit is what's gonna give them the power and the authority to do the work he commanded them to do as they go out into the world. He says, wait for it. But when it comes, get to work. So he chose them, he showed himself to them, he gave them a job to do, and then he promised them the power and the authority to do the work that he gave them to do. And then what did he do next? He just left. <laughs> he got out of there <laughs> in a really dramatic way. Lifted up into the heavens. And some people would really wonder, that sounds fantastic, they're probably just embellishing. I don't think so. Listen, in all of the resurrection accounts, one of the mysterious things about the resurrected Christ is that he just shows up and then he's no longer there. Like he just appears and then disappears even though he's a physical body. 
If Jesus just did that again, what would the disciples have probably done? What would they have thought? Well, we've seen this before. He's probably going to come back. Let's just wait. It needed to be a dramatic display, a visible sign that he is going. Don't wait until I come back to do the work because the truth is you're not going to see me again until your work is complete. So he chose them. He made them eyewitnesses to the resurrection. He gave them a job to do. He made them a promise. And that brings us to the story Beth told, to the fulfillment of that promise, the day of Pentecost that we're celebrating today. It says this in Acts chapter two. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Okay, now we don't have time to deal with the speaking in tongues issue, but I do just wanna say this really quick because I get asked all the time in Bible studies. I'll get asked, what happens if we're in worship and somebody starts speaking in tongues? (laughs) I know pastors who are terrified that that might happen. Honestly, if I'm honest, maybe I'm a little fearful too. But here's what I know. I gotta get over my fear. Because in our tradition, in the Presbyterian church, it is approved according to the book of common worship that speaking in tongues is a valid way to worship the Lord. That if it were to happen in worship, that it would be a valid form of worship and we should accept it as long as somebody in the room can interpret what they're saying. That's how our tradition understands it. That day of Pentecost was both a miracle of speech and a miracle of hearing. So our tradition says, what I would, be, what I would do, what we should all be prepared for, if we're in the middle of worship and somebody starts speaking and we don't understand what they're saying, all we need to do is say, who here understands? Because if it's truly a message from God, if it truly is speaking in tongues, there will be somebody in the room who understands what they're saying. If there isn't, then we just say that person is having a moment, an experience, perhaps it's a holy moment and an experience with God, but it's not for us. And we go on with our service. Y'all ready for somebody to bust out speaking in tongues? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, just be honest. It makes us a little nervous, but it's in our tradition. And we have a pattern and an order for how to handle it. But again, we'll talk about that some other time. The point of the text today is that it simply just shows us that he not only chose showed himself to them, commanded them to go and promised them the power to do it, that he delivered on his promise. Do you know what happens next? After Acts 2, Peter preaches preaches this great sermon. The book goes on. What happens next, we get these stories, like these followers of Jesus, they show up in a town called Antioch. And up to this point, they're just called followers of the way. Up until I think Acts chapter eight, the Christians are just known as followers of the way. They don't call themselves Christians. They saw themselves as a renewed Israel. They just refer to themselves as followers of the way. They show up in this town called Antioch and these people in this town, they begin to notice that these people are proclaiming a crucified and resurrected Christ who lived and taught us to live a particular way. 
That's what they're saying. And then as we watch what they do in our community, the two match. Like what they say about their savior matches with the way that they live their lives every day. So these non-believers began to call these followers of the way, they began to call them little Christs. That they look like a little example of the Christ that they proclaim. That's what the word Christian means. I-A-N at the end of a word is a diminutive. It means little Christ. Christians were called that by non-Christians who heard what they said and watched what they did and saw that the two matched. Then you go like to Acts 17. The Christian message is always pushed against by the culture. Part of the Christian message is a strong condemnation against idolatry in any form. So when Christians are preaching in the marketplace, a marketplace filled with merchants who are often selling what? Idols. (laughs) It's bad for business, y'all. It's bad for business. So these Christians are being persecuted, some of them thrown in jail. They cause a riot in one circumstance. And the onlookers who are complaining about them, they call them these people who are turning the world upside down. (laughs) Onlookers are talking about Christians saying that they are turning the world upside down. How did they do that? They did that simply by what they said and how they lived. Y'all listen, nowhere in the book of Acts, and I'm not making any profound statements about governance. I'm just saying nowhere in the book of Acts did disciples of Jesus run for office to change legislation. That is not what they did. They proclaimed the good news of Jesus and they lived lives that modeled it. And because of that, they turned the world upside down. Because of that, thousands were added to their numbers every day. That's what the book of Acts tells us. Because of that, 2,000 years later, they have fundamentally changed the world, and here we are. But y'all, there's something missing. When you read the book of Acts, it can sound like it's full of stuff that God just doesn't do anymore. God used to operate in a different way, I guess, because we don't see this stuff now. Can I tell you that our brothers and sisters around the world, that that many of them do? In China, in Africa, thousands are added to the church because they are seeing what is testified to in the book of Acts. Powerful witness by followers of Jesus, regardless of the environment in which they're worshiping. The largest Presbyterian church in the world, do you know where it is? It's in South Korea, 50,000 members. When Sabrina and I were in seminary, the seminary we went to, a third of the students, was it a third or a half? I'm gonna say a third, just so I don't boast and exaggerate. A third of the students were from Korea. They had come to America to be educated, not so they could go back to Korea, but because they felt they were called to be missionaries in America. In the Muslim world, half of the men in the Muslim world will tell you they have dreams of Jesus, that he appears to them in their dreams. In the Muslim world, the most common way somebody comes to faith in Jesus is through a dream. 
that then requires them to make a radical decision, typically leaving their family, otherwise they could be killed. Well, there are stories of this stuff happening all around the world. Missionaries tell us, authors tell us, this stuff is happening. I believe that it's true. Why isn't it happening here? Why don't we see it? And I'm not saying this to you. I'm not condemning our church. I'm just making a statement on Christianity in the West. The reason we don't see numbers added, the reason we see churches declining is either because we don't really believe it or because the words we say simply do not match with what we do. And maybe it's just because we don't have enough faith that we're still stuck in our doubt, that we're still stuck in fear and doubt and we just don't have enough faith. Maybe we believe that Christ rose from the dead but we don't believe that God chose me. Like do you, when you, when you think about your relationship with God, do you think God chose you? That he's, that he's trying to show you evidence to reveal that he is alive? Do you believe that he's given you work to do? Do you believe that he's promised you the power to do that work? Do you believe that the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives and moves in you? And that without that power, we can't do anything. But with that power, go read the book of Acts and see what happens. The book of Acts is the only book in the Bible that's not finished. It's the only book in the Bible that's incomplete because the spread and the growth and the movement of the church isn't over yet. And y'all, I'm telling you, it's not over here. It's not over here. Like I'm convinced of this. Do you know if you look through the calendar for the past 2000 years, every 500 years, I know I'm off script so you guys are afraid I'm gonna go till four o'clock, I promise, I won't, <laughs> I promise. But I just wanna, don't worry, I promise because I want you to hear this. Do you know that for the past 2,000 years, every 500 years, there was a radical reformation in the church? Every 500 years, there was a radical reformation in the church and it fundamentally changes, gets back on task, does its job and continues to transform the world. Did you know that every 50 years, there is a revival in the church where people catch the fire again, where they wake up, where they start to not only believe, but to live the truth that Jesus proclaimed. Do you know when we are right now? We are 500 years since the Reformation, and we are 50 years since the last Jesus Movement revival in the early 70s. I'm telling you, we're right there. But if it's gonna happen in the States the way it's already happening around the world, God's people need to be faithful and we gotta wake up. We've gotta ask ourselves some hard questions. Do we really believe this is true? Start with the resurrection. Do you have enough evidence to believe it really happened? If it did, then it fundamentally changes reality and life can never be the same. Do you believe that God has chosen you that he has called you to a particular service for the kingdom, that he has given you the power to do it. I know many of you are retired. Do you know that you still have work to do? Now you do it for free, but. <laughs> <laughs> but your purpose in life is not over. Wherever you are going, I don't care where it is, wherever you are going, make disciples of Jesus. 
teach them to obey what he taught us. Until your last breath, that's your job. If the church in America will accept this and believe this, y'all, we live in a place where we're free to be loud about it. <laughs> and yes, the world will react. That's fine. That's, that's what happens. That's what happened to the first Christians. It's the same thing that will happen to us. But we're in a context where we're free to be loud about it. We can't be quiet anymore. If the world saw us loving our enemies, if the world saw us living lives of sacrificial service to others, not just grasping for what's ours like everybody else, if the world heard our prayers and if our prayers could change from, I think the world, when they pray, they ask God why about everything, right? Why, why this, why that, why this? I heard a podcast, um, a guy was talking to a military officer who was trying to hear from God and he just couldn't. And he said, I'm asking God why? And the guy said, wait a second, would you ever ask your commanding officer why? <laughs> the guy said, no. <laughs> he said, you're asking the wrong question. If you really wanna hear from God, there's only two questions. What do you want me to know? And what do you want me to do? So I'm just telling you all this morning, and I'm, I'm done, but I'm just telling you all this morning, those are the two questions. And I don't care where you are. If you're at that place where you're still trying to reconcile the resurrection, that's fine. Ask God the two questions. What do you want me to know? And what do you want me to do? If you believe in the resurrection, if you love and follow Jesus, but maybe just nothing's happened in your life and you're not doing anything with it, same two questions. What do you want me to know? And what do you want me to do? Y'all, I'm convinced those two questions will transform this church. Don't be afraid. Change brings fear. Don't be afraid. Trust on this Pentecost Sunday. Trust the Holy Spirit to do with this church what he plans. If we ask those two questions as individuals and as the church, I, see, I think we'll see things we can't even imagine. Amen? Will you pray with me? God, be present with us as we leave here today. For many of us, we just need help. Maybe it's help coming to believe that this is all really true. That it's not just one among many religions. Maybe we need help believing that we are somebody who is worthy of being called and chosen by you. Maybe we need help believing that you have given us the strength to do that at work no matter where we are. We all need the courage to step out in faith, to trust you, to abandon the sermon we wrote, and trust you to give us the words to speak. God, if you would move this church from fearful in joy, from doubtful in our worship, to faithful and obedient and powerful in our witness. It will change lives for the better, not only in Kingwood, but around the world. I believe that's the work you have for us. Help us to believe it too. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said.